Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. All right. Good evening, everybody. It's Wednesday, May 18th, 2016. And we're here tonight with Mr. Bob Schaefer. Um, you guys, by the way, uh, feel free to... Help support these calls by joining the website, youhavetheright.com. That's how we bring people like Bob to you, is with your support. So go check it out. So, Bob, how you doing? I'm doing great. All right. So what are you going to talk to us about tonight? Well, we're going to talk about how the um, president's quasi-government, that means it's not really a government, it's a corporation now since since about 1871, and as it was enhanced by 1878, uh, is no longer a, a government, and how they are messing with us uh, and pretending to be a government, uh, <clears throat> and uh, through our own ignorance, uh, we're letting them get away with it. And so this this will be talking about... <clears throat> the sovereignty of ourselves and the sovereignty of our land and, and looking at them as nothing more than public servants. And they're not even that anymore. But that's what they were before 1871. They were public servants. Now, <clears throat> they still consider themselves public servants that serve the public entity or the corporation. In other words, when you see uh, on the fender of a face card to protect and to serve is not to protect and serve you. It's to protect and serve the corporation that they work for. So they, they're the servant of that public entity, not the public uh, sovereignty. <clears throat> so that's what we're going to be talking about. All right. Should we get into it? Go for it. Okay. Uh, I want to welcome everybody, especially government people. We want you to know what we're doing. Uh, we have nothing to hide. Uh, I think there's about, I don't know, 16 or 18 comp- um, conference calls are in the in the archives now, and uh, <clears throat> we will be insisting, if we ever have to go to court, uh, we will be insisting on playing these conference calls to the the jury of our peers so they can see uh, if we have any evil and criminal intent to be committing any crime. See, what we're, where we're, the system has gotten, uh, it's gotten so out of hand that... Uh, some of us look like we're we're criminals, but we're really just on the edge. Uh, but probably the most law-abiding people you've ever met in your life. Uh, and these conference calls um, can be downloaded, and I would suggest that for your own personal archives, so that if you, if you ever have a court trial where they're coming after you uh, maliciously, uh, they 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 put people away that are totally innocent. You you know. We, we believe that, uh, well, I'm innocent, so they can't harm me. Well, look up on the Internet the Innocence Project, where they get people off of death row that were totally innocent, yet they were put away, you know, justice was served, 
and you lose, and the people are on death row. I heard them interview a guy that was in solitary confinement for 40 years because they want 43 years because they wanted to make a, an example out of him. He was a Black Panther, and <clears throat> so they wanted to kill that whole movement. So I just put him away, and they did it illegally, and they finally, uh, finally set him free about uh, three months ago, I guess it is now. So because you're innocent or you think you're innocent doesn't mean that you can't be prosecuted and put away. So you need a good defense. And Vince Lombardi, the coach of the Green Bay Packers, uh, has a really great quote. I quote it often. You've probably heard it from me quoted several times, but it needs to be quoted. It needs to be etched on the backside of your eyeball so that you really understand that you can use this all the time. And that is the best defense is a good offense. Now, this works on the football field, in the battlefield, and in the courtroom. And I help people do that. I just got back from Arizona. Uh, I, I will, I'm going to give you a, a story. I'm going to tell you the truth. Uh, I'll change the names to protect the innocent, just like they used to do on uh, the old radio show or TV show, Dragnet. But uh, th- this should never have happened. Now, this man, he's a real man. He's, uh, he rescues horses that they're going to put down if they don't race good at the racetrack. And so he rescues racehorses. And <clears throat> he has a lot of land over in Arizona. And uh, he's, uh, he's somebody you don't want to mess with on the street. In other words, he has actually killed two men that attacked him unjustly. He defended himself. They died. Uh, he's kind of a, you say, macho guy. But when when he was attacked in the courtroom, he was just falling apart. He was just, he just came unglued. He didn't know what to do. And that's where most of us are. We do not know what to do in the courtroom. And they know that. And so they push us. And they, uh, it, this guy spent thousands of dollars defending himself. He should have never had to do that. He called me up about two weeks ago. He was just freaking out, and I've done some other work for him. I've created foundations for him and other things. And so he 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 said, "I just really need some help." And then he told me what his problem was. And as busy as I am, I said, "I will be there. I'm going to be there for you." He he, he just needed me, and uh, everything I do, it seems like, is uh, on an emergency basis, and his rose to the top. So I helped him sue uh, a, a state judge um, that was really going off half-cocked. See, judges, they're not always as righteous as they would like you to believe them to be. Um, anyway, we uh, he helped him sue a judge and two neighbors. that were They were friendly neighbors for many years, and then they all of a sudden just turned on him and because they wanted something for free. And uh, they thought, we'll just use the courtroom. To, uh, to get what we want. <clears throat> and then his own his own two attorneys, we sued them because they were working with the judge to just really uh, mess with this guy. And we sued a well company. Now, again, I'm going to change the name, but uh, <clears throat> I'm going to read to you the first couple of pages of this lawsuit that was just filed last uh, about three days ago. Uh, <clears throat> it starts out on paragraph number one. Uh, the title is a brief introduction. Now, normally, you don't do this. Uh, normally, you start out with jurisdiction. When you use the U.S. District Court, they want to see 
coordinate your jurisdiction, which we get to eventually. Uh, actually, it's a very nice issue, but we want to we want to set the stage here, and we can do that as pro se because we're not bound by the rules that everybody else is bound by. Pro se litigants shall be held to a less stringent standard than than attorneys, and the so is their documents. So we start out, let's say, with our opening statement. This would be the opening statement once you get to trial. Paragraph number one, as will be seen, the old statement, no good deed goes unpunished, is an appropriate observation in the Seventh Amendment action at law. See, when we sue in U.S. District Court, we use the, the Seventh Amendment, which uh, you know, starts out with ensuance of the common law. Well, an action at law is the title of a document when you use uh, the common law. <clears throat> Paragraph number two, this action of law is not to be considered as any type of an appeal of any valid state court case rendering the Rooker-Feldman doctrine inapplicable. Now, you see, one of the first things we, I I had him off at the pass with this little statement because they're going to come back and make a motion to dismiss. First, failure to state a cause of action upon which relief can be granted pursuant to Rule 126B. Well, we we can shoot that one down, too, because we've been doing this for years. But uh, the Rooker-Feldman doctrines, a lot of people, and this is why I think the, the people in the system let me do what I do, because there's a lot of people out there that go off half-cocked and they, and they do stuff like this, but they violate this Rooker-Feldman doctrine. So what happens is they have a bad state court case, and they don't appeal it properly, and so they lost. So now then they go and sue everybody in the United States District Court, and the district court looks at that as an appeal. In other words, you didn't finish prosecuting your case in the state court. You should have appealed it in the state court. And if you didn't like what the appellate court did, you appeal it to the Supreme Court. If you don't like what they do, that's the state Supreme Court. If you don't like what they do, you appeal it to the United States Supreme Court. In other words, you keep appealing in the state court. You don't switch. Now, if somebody sues you, in the state court, and it's a federal issue, like a land patent issue, within a certain amount of days, I believe it's 10 days, you remove it to the United States District Court. That's an okay thing to do. <clears throat> and you give them notice. Notice is, is under due process. Fifth Amendment gives us due process. And the 14th Amendment makes the Fifth Amendment applicable to the states. So they can't get out of it. And by notice, this is like a finger in the chest I'm giving you notice, boy, and I demand this. this and so notice and demand is the common law action. <clears throat> so with the, if, you, if you catch it for early, you remove it automatically. And when you give them a notice of removal, give the state court and all the opposition notice of removal, it is removed whether they like it or not. It may get someday remanded back, but as of right now, it is gone. You, the state court has no jurisdiction whatsoever. It was removed. And so that's a tactic that can be used. And sometimes the federal court will keep the, keep the case. Sometimes they'll remand it back, but they only remand it back when, when well, they might even remand it back on their own, but usually the opposition has to make a motion for it to be remanded, remanded back. But that takes time and money, and, and I don't mind spending the opposition's money because they're the one that messed with me or, or, or the people that I'm dealing with. <laughs> okay, so the Rooker-Feldman doctrine is inapplicable here. Don't bother to go there because this is not an appeal of anything valid in the state court. 
Okay, going on. It is the good faith intent of this action law to address recent material injuries. In other words, we're not, we're not dealing with the injuries that happened before this happened. Sustained by Plaintiff Jones, name is changed to her, who is one of the sovereign people of America, along with injuries perpetrated against his private sovereign land. So right now, these are the two issues we're going to talk about tonight. The Founding Fathers made roughly two and a half million former subjects of the King of England. They made them sovereigns. They were all kings, kings on their own land, their, their, house, their house was their castle, literally. Their land was theirs. In other words, the public servants had to stay away, go away, leave me alone. I'm a king over here. Now, if I if I did a damage to somebody else's life, liberty, or property, then they, at the common law they could come come in, but they had to go through the hoops, mainly the Fourth Amendment. And the Fourth Amendment term probable cause, which we get into later in the document, which we won't do tonight, but the Fourth Amendment term probable cause was for a common law or an unwritten law felony. In other words, like murder, rape, arson, treason, kidnapping, uh, they, they hadn't even made a, a written law yet. In other words, they didn't say, you know, there ought to be a law against murder. They didn't have to do that at the common law. It was already a felony. So the term probable cause in 1789, when that was drafted, and see, we're, we're looking at the intent of the original lawmaker, which is binding on today's court system or quasi-court system. Quasi means as if it were, but isn't. It's not a court system anymore. Today it's an administrative law tribunal or an ALT. All of them. It's very rare. If you, and, and they give you a jury trial, but not a trial by jury. Well, the Seventh Amendment action at law, we demand a trial by jury where the jury looks at both the law and the facts. When you have an administrative law or an ALT jury trial, the judge will say, I will judge the law, you will judge the facts. Well, there's no protection there against bad laws. At the trial by jury, if the Seventh Amendment is part of the um, um, system of checks and balances built in the American systems, systems of law and jurisprudence where the the jury of our peers, the people, the sovereign people, the other kings get to look at the law as the, as the last resort and, say, and they can say that's, that's a bad law. That, so that, that, that whole thing is called jury nullification. Well, if you're in an, an administrative law tribunal, you better not talk about um, jury nullification. They'll hold you in contempt of court for that because it makes the judge look bad when he says, I'm going to judge the law. He's not going to ever judge the law. The judge, the law is set up for income and for profit for the court system. It's a revenue. It's a revenue-generating thing for them. And that's why you see, well, for instance, you'll, you'll hear where like Volkswagen and some of these people got to find really big money. That, that's a good thing for the government. Hey, we got billions of dollars out of that company. And they're looking for ways to do that. Back in the 70s, when we had the uh, gas shortage, which was never a shortage at all, there were, there were tankers in the harbor who were sitting low in the water, full of oil. They wouldn't let them offload because they were trying to make us look like we had an oil shortage. And that's all been proven now. But the government got in on the rape by saying, well, we're going to get an excess profit tax. 
from those oil companies. They got all that money. Let's just clean up on that ourselves. So that's what, uh, and this isn't, by the way, a, a, a constitutionally valid government since 1871 or, or and 1878. It's a corporation. It's a profit-making corporation. They're listed on Dun & and um, they're making money, tons of money. I mean, these people are working for it, and they keep a safe face and make you want, want to believe that they're real, and they're not. So we have to show them that we are sovereign and our land is sovereign. Go away, leave me alone. So we're talking about this Mr. Jones, who is one of the sovereign people of America, along with the injuries perpetrated against your private sovereign land since the alleged state court case was commenced. commenced. So, um, in other words, he's, he, right now we're talking about a brand new injury. So go away with Rooker Feldman, doctor. We're not we're not trying to appeal anything there. Mr. Jones believes that he can prove that the alleged state court was func- functioning in the clear, total, and complete absence of all subject matter jurisdiction, and that any appearances made by him and his attorneys could not overcome the subject matter jurisdictional problem. He can prove that. Either the, the court has subject matter jurisdiction or it does not. And that subject matter jurisdiction cannot be waived by error, mistake, or inadvertence of any of the parties. See subject matter jurisdictional memorandum of law attached, where we have all kinds of court cases that says, if you don't have subject matter jurisdiction, I can't give you subject matter jurisdiction by my mistake in walking in the door and making an appearance here. And normally... We, we say, um, I'm appearing here today specially and not generally for the sole purpose of challenging the court's jurisdiction. Now, according to the Memorandum of Law, everything must come to a speaking halt. Does it? No. They violate their own law, so then we have to sue them. This is a training thing. In my local court, they don't want to see me. In fact, they have a monthly meeting, and my name comes up pretty regularly. Shaper sued another one of us. Okay, Plaintiff Jones, here and after Jones, or Plaintiff Jones, the defend- and, and defendants, uh, John Smith and Mary Smith, here and after the, the Smiths, had been friendly next-door neighbors for many years. Now, this goes to show you how things can go sour in time when people agreed surfaces over some problem that, that nobody knew about years ago. Their private land is contiguous, with their actual houses being approximately 800 feet apart, with the Smith's house located north on a slight hill and approximately 60 feet above Jones' house. So this is way out in the country. Everybody has lots of land. The Jones' private land had not been one, but had not one, but two water wells located thereon, with uh, that's the Smiths, with Jones' private land having one water well just south of and next to his house. And so we're trying to describe where, where these wells are. It was almost a decade ago that both of the Jones' water wells became inoperable. Uh, oh, excuse me, the Smiths. These are the, the defendants in this case. At that time, they entered into a written agreement now, written is, is important with, with um, real estate or land, and uh, that's called the statute of frauds. If you, if you make a verbal agreement with somebody, they can come back years later and say that agreement is invalid. It was not in writing, according to the statute of frauds. And every, every state has the statute of frauds. 
And so they entered into a written agreement with Jones to drill and pay for a new water well on Jones' private land. Now, this is where we originally started out and said no good good deed ever goes unpunished. He was a good guy. He let them say, yeah, come on over. Put a, you can put a well on my land. You pay for it and run your pipes over there, and you can have water from, my, from the aquifer that's under my land. Okay. And they drilled that well approximately 500 feet east of Jones' original water well and probably into the same aquifer as uh, Jones' original well. As a condition of him letting them do that, he was able to use a small portion of that water for drinking water for his rescued horses. Other than that, there would be no cost to the Jones. In other words, he didn't sell them a site or a piece of his land. He just was helping his neighbor. He's just a good guy. Until the new water well was drilled rendering, uh, render, and rendered operable, Jones, in good faith, allowed the Smiths to run a water line from his existing water well to their water tanks up on the hill to supply them with water at no cost until their, the new uh, well was rendered uh, operable. When finished, the new well. See. When finished, the new well produced non-potable water. It was it was kind of oily or something. And Mr. Jones, a well-known water well electrician in the valley, offered to do what he could to clean it up, as everyone thought the water was from the same aquifer as his existing well, and could be cleaned. The the Smiths declined his offer and continued to freely use the good water from Jones's existing well for almost a decade. So here's ten years go by and they're getting free water from this guy from this wonderful neighbor man. As the water well expert, uh, he finally made a determination that his existing well was being used at more than its capacity and could possibly collapse due to the high volume of water being pumped therefrom. He then asked the Smiths to reduce the use of his water in order to prolong the life of his existing well. Jones would later ask the Smiths to reduce their use several times for the same reason, but they refused. When Jones' existing water well finally did collapse, it only produced enough water for his own limited use, uh, and the Smiths were forced to haul in all the water that they were to use. Now, let's see here. Jones, again, offered to honor the original written contract regarding the earlier well, which the Smiths had paid for, but they declined, knowing that Jones, at a great cost to him, was hiring the, I'll just say, Blank Bank Drilling and Pump Company, to drill a new water well several hundred feet to the west of his existing collapsed water well. <clears throat> In January 25-214, the new um, water well company, quote number so-and-so, see Exhibit A, indicates that Jones was to pay $26,766.94 for the new well, including $225 for a uh, drilling permit which Jones paid. Later, the drilling company returned the $225 and labeled it as an accounting error. In other words, this is why they're getting sued, is because they were hiding something here. 
Jones would later discover that the Smiths had approached this drilling company and conspired with them to pay the $225 permit fee so they could have the permit interest in the new well, in the new other well. This overt act was accomplished without Jones's knowledge or permission. In other words, they got a permit to build this new well that he's already paid for. <clears throat> and so they're going to try to take this well away from him this way. The Smith then sued this man. This is the guy I told you about. There was You don't want to mess with on the streets, but they brought him into court for a court order for them to have access to the new well, including a dedicated easement across the front of his private land to their land at no cost to them, and with, with Jones paying for a $1,000 cost for a survey of such easement. In other words, here's a nice guy that's been giving people water for, for 10 years. Now they're suing him. And they're wanting his new well that he's paid all this money for. And he he can't have any water out of that well. It's un, it's unbelievable. So that's why this, this is kind of a, the um, introduction to the, the rest of the case, which we will not read. Jones, not knowing anything about land law, hired an alleged attorney named, I won't name it, who handed the case off to another alleged attorney named, I won't name his name, Jones clearly informed them of his willingness to help the Smiths develop the old well that they had already paid for, but they were not to have any interest in the new well. This information was rendered to the new attorneys about 15 times. Now, this is why we are suing the attorneys, because everybody had all notice of all this stuff, and yet somebody's getting paid into the table at work party. Looking back at the entire situation, Jones clearly notices and alleges that the evidence indicates that his own attorneys and the alleged judge have sided with the Smiths and have attempted to get him to sign a contract that is totally against his position and totally for the Smiths. In other words, right now, this, remember we talked earlier about the, uh, the statute of frauds. Right now, there's nothing in writing, so they're trying to get him to sign something and put something in writing, then they can nailing with it. The alleged contract, see Exhibit B, attests, and the later corrected contract also attests, clearly looked as though it was drafted by the Smith's attorney. And it wasn't. It was drafted by his own attorney. And it gives the, gives the whole farm away to his neighbors. As of the date of this document, Jones has not signed any contract, but the alleged judge and his own attorneys have attempted to force him to sign such a contract. Jones sincerely believes that forcing him to sign such a contract would be in violation of Jones' constitutionally guaranteed and secured right to contract and right not to contract, according to well-settled American contract law. Jones also sincerely believes that this situation presents a federal question of great public interest, which will qualify it to be heard at the Supreme Court of the United States of America. Now, right there, we're giving them notice that you guys are going to be spending from two to $400,000 before this is over, because we're going to take you all the way. As of the date of this document, Arizona Statute of Frauds, that's ARS Section 44-101, uh, in parentheses 6, has not been invoked, simply because he didn't sign anything yet. Jones has not agreed to anything in writing rendering the new water well, uh, regarding the new water well, nor will he in the future. The judge is almost said he was going to hold him in contempt of court if he doesn't sign this document. But now we took the judge away. See, this is what you can do. 
when you sue a judge, he's out of there. He becomes a party, and he can't do anything. If he does, and sometimes they just don't care, then that's really bad evidence to show the the other courts, the federal court, uh, what that state court judge was uh, doing. Now, of course, what we do, we go look for his oath of office and his statement of economic interest and his bond, and we find out he's not even a judge. He's just pretending, and he's just counting on our, the ignorance of the people on the street that uh, he th- they think he's a judge. Good night. He's wearing a robe. He's in a, in a courtroom, and, you, and you've got all these attorneys and everybody calling him your honor. And it looks real, but it's not real. Okay. Uh, he has been informed and believed that Jones has been informed and believed that for American contract law to be involved, there must be a mutual benefit. Meeting of the minds without any threats, threats or coercion, like what they've been doing to him. And it must be in writing with each party receiving a signed original and with a valuable consideration. Get a of this. These attorneys don't even know this one. A valuable consideration of at least one American dollar of silver. There is, there is no such contract in the record in any American court of record. Now, see, all the constitutions to talk about the state courts being a court of record. You look up court of record in, in uh, the law dictionaries or court of record proceeds at the common law. Well, that's what we're doing, and that's not what they're doing. They're not a court of record. So in either American court of record or administrative law tribunal, an ALT, see Exhibit C, entitled Defendant's Confidential Position Statement. Then we have... Um, Jones makes the following additional declarations in support of this action at law. Because all the named co-defendants are here in suit in their individual capacity, plaintiff Jones hereby objects and protests to the possibility of the sovereign American people of Arizona State and this county, I'm not going to name the county, paying for the attorney representation for the private non-jurisdictional activities of the named co-defendants here in the list. In other words, why should the people pay for these guys who are pretending? And we use a, a very common um, quote, notice to the agents is notice to the principal, notice to the principal is notice to the agents. So in other words, we, we're giving everybody notice. And everybody got sued, either last night or today. And this guy called me up about four hours ago and he says, Bob, I just want to thank you. This is a guy that was falling apart two weeks ago. He said, I had a really good night's sleep last night. I feel really good about all this. Now, I'm just going to read the, the jurisdictional statement. I will not read the parties and venue. Competent jurisdiction for this United States District Court action at law is found in the 1787 AD Constitution for the United States of America. The United is spelled with lowercase because that's what their Constitution had. In other words, the word united was an adjective. It was not a pronoun. It was it's a description of the states of America. They were good old boy buddies. They were united. So we have the, the Constitution for the states of America that are united. Its supremacy clause found in Article 6, Paragraph 2, its 1st, 4th, 5th, and 7th Amendments, and the 1848 AD International Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and its Protocol of Prairie Terrell, United States land patent laws and the Congressional Township Survey laws and the Uniform Commercial Code, UCC. That's what gives the United States District Court jurisdiction. 
on this particular case. So that's what I was doing last week when I during our last call I was calling from from Arizona. <clears throat> anyway, this guy is just thrilled and he called the dogs off. Everybody is now stuttering and wondering what what they're going to have to do. And they're going to have to start spending a ton of money to defend this action that we're, we've got going against them. And they're going to come up with all kinds of songs and dances about why it should be dismissed. But I'm ready for them because of my 36 years of research and my archives of memorandum of law. They can't get away with it. And it's going to, it's going to, we're going to go all the way with them. And it's going to, they're going to either want to settle and they can do that if everybody wants to get it over with, they can. That's an option. But if they don't want to settle, that's really okay with us because we're gonna. The higher this goes, the more people can take advantage of this man's grief. You see, when you win in a lower court, it's only good for that jurisdiction. When you go up on appeal, it goes into a bigger jurisdiction. And when you get to the United States Supreme Court, you have, which is what we use mostly, everything that we quote is from the United States Supreme Court. That's good all over America. So I can help people in Maine using United States Supreme Court cases. Anyway, one of the, I'm going to do, I'm going to do a, a diagram here. We'll do a mental diagram. You know, back in when I was in high school and college, uh, my English teacher used to like to diagram uh, a sentence. And, uh, you know, I never did figure out what a dangling participle was, <laughs> but, but that was part of the diagram. So we're going to diagram sovereignty here of the people. So imagine, if you will, um, whether you're an atheist or an agnostic, just bear with me uh, because uh, the, the Declaration of Independence referred to the Creator. And so we're looking at the, the intent of the original lawmakers, um, and so they, in our diagram, we're going to have the creator up at the very top. He's the highest source of jurisdiction there is. And then under him would be uh, um, miracles-type um, laws. Uh, you know, like the, there, are, there are things that happen that go against the natural laws. But there's the natural laws under that. And natural laws would be like gravity or hydraulics or leverage, things that uh, natural science produce. And unless you're some kind of a magician, you cannot overrule gravity and uh, hydraulics and all this stuff, leverage. You know, you can lift a a 50-ton vehicle with, with a hydraulic jack by just pushing on a little lever now and then. If you have a big enough lever, they say you can lift the earth uh, on that with a lever. So we have, we start out with the creator, then we have uh, we have um, eternal laws that, that can be overruled by miracles, and then we have natural laws that we all live with. Now, we can, and then under that is common law. Now, see, before any legislature ever sat down, the very first legislature, Every nation on planet Earth had its own common law, which is unwritten law. In other words, it's based on reason, logic, and common sense, and it deals with custom, usage, practice, and procedure. In other words, this is the way we do this here. Now, in New Guinea, they eat their enemies, which is called cannibalism. So under the New Guinea common law, that's okay. That's what they do there. 
we don't have that here. It's against our common law. That's something we don't do. So the common law, nobody gets away from the common law, even a sovereign king. If if a, if if a king does an injury to somebody else's life, liberty, or property, then he can get get um, prosecuted, and and not by the penal code either, because the penal code doesn't apply to the sovereign people. See the so underneath the sovereign people, we had originally two and a half million former subjects of the King of England became two and a half million sovereign Americans. And they weren't citizens of anything. So there's no such thing as a sovereign citizen or a sovereign citizen ideology. Uh, the term sovereign citizen is an oxymoron. You can't be a sovereign and a citizen at the same time. You have to step down from your sovereignty to become a citizen slash person to work for the government or to be a public servant. And that can happen, and that can go back and forth during the day. In other words, one of the sovereign people steps down to become a judge. When he walks in the door, he becomes a citizen person, and he places himself under the constitutional laws, and and because he, he's the one that took an oath of office to that that system of laws. The sovereign guy above, he didn't take an oath of office. He's he's protected by them, but he uh, unless he causes an injury to somebody else's life, liberty, or property, it, it, he's above it. But now this this judge, he steps down for the course of time during the day, and he places himself under under the constitutional mandates, which include the Fourth Amendment. And there's a lot of power in the Fourth Amendment and, and getting it interpreted according to the intent of the original lawmakers. See, now, they could have amended... Uh, a lot of people say, well, the, the Constitution is a joke. It's just, you know, it's old. It was done uh, 239 years ago. And, uh, you know, we've moved ahead. And, well, wait a minute, the founding fathers were were smart enough to make it a living document. It could be amended, and it was amended 27 times. And one of the amendments turned out to be bad, and so they did a repeal amendment. And so if you don't like something out there, you can amend it. And they have never amended the Fourth Amendment um, probable cause. So now, they, they, with, under administrative law, they have what they call reasonable cause um, or cause. And so they go into court and they get an administrative law judge to issue an administrative warrant to come out and inspect your land because you had a couple of tumbleweeds that you, had, you let it grow old and you had a, a, a flat tire on your antique car that's been sitting there for 30 years. And so that's against the code. Well, wait a minute. The code doesn't apply to a sovereign on his sovereign land. Now, here's the way laws are, are made. Laws are either passed or they are adopted. When they're adopted, they don't apply to the sovereign people. When they're passed, they don't apply to the sovereign people unless they step down and place themselves under it. So, but when they're adopted, there's even a less, uh, they're even less important to anybody. Now, with with the constitutionally valid law, it starts out in one of the legislative houses. So now we're going to a legislature where they uh, they have a it's a good idea. Somebody says there ought to be a law, and it starts out as a bill. That's the title of the document. And if it's in the assembly, it's called assembly bill or A B. If it's in the Senate, it's the Senate bill or S B. But it's a bill, and they have a rating to the whole house 
Then it gets sent to committee where they have another reading. And then they work it out and they want to make it different, a little bit different. Maybe it needs some some changes. Somebody has a good idea. Then they have another reading. Then they take it back to the main house if they if it ever gets out of committee. Some, a lot of stuff dies in committee. In other words, I'm showing you here that it's really hard to pass a law. So then they finally get it worked out and they, they get it out of that one house and they have to send it to the other house. So it goes to the other house where they have a reading. Then they send it to committee. Now they can agree with, you know, this is a good law just like it is, or they might want to make some other changes. If they make more changes, they can do that. And then they have another reading, and they all agree on that. Then it goes back to the main house where it's read again. There's all these different readings. And then if they pass it, it goes if there was any changes made in it, it has to go back to the first house so that they can agree on the changes. So both houses now agree that this is the law they want passed. So they finally get it all passed as far as they're concerned. Now this is part, by the way, of the system of checks and balances that, that we talk about, that the, the, the crazy governments that we have today, the federal corporate uh, profit-making corporations, they, they don't want to hear about the system of checks and balances. They're in it for the profit. Go away. Leave us alone. You're all a bunch of uh, crazy uh, sovereign citizens. Anyway, so then it goes to, to the governor of the state, if it's a state law, for him to sign, or the president, if it's a federal. Now, he can sign it, or he can, under the system of checks and balances, he can veto it. He can say, I don't buy that. I'm not going to sign that into law. Uh, he might make some suggestions, or he may just put it in his pocket and not do anything. That's called a pocket veto. He didn't really veto it, but he just ignored it. Now, if he if he if he signed it into law, now it's law, but it has to have an effective date. First, it has to have a date of passage. Then it has to have a published effective date. Then it has to be published in in some of the some of the, the journals, and then it becomes law. Now then it goes to the executive department. That's the cop on the beat, code enforcement. And they can look at it and say, I'm not going to enforce that law. This is part of the system of checks and balances. They can make that decision, and they often do. Back during Depression and the, and the Prohibition, there was a lot of cops that said, I'm not going to mess with my neighbor that's got his little still going in the backyard making, making his own hooch. Uh, it's okay with me. I'm not going to enforce that law. So there's your system of checks and balances. Now, if he does enforce it, then it goes to the judicial. So now we have the legislative, the executive, and the judicial getting involved. The judge can say, I'm not going to, you know, that, that case is dismissed. That's a bad law. He can judge that as a bad law. They don't do that anymore, but he, they did in the past. Or the people could say, I want a trial by jury. I want a Seventh Amendment trial by jury of my peers. I want my other, my neighbors, the guys that have their own still in their backyard to make this ruling. I want them to judge that law. And that was another part of the system of checks and balances. And that's the reason that the repeal came about is because of so many, they couldn't get a conviction after a while because so many people said, no, that's a bad law. So now there's another way to make laws. And that's administrative laws. Administrative law is where they looked at a whole book of laws. It could be 300 laws. And they just say, I make a motion uh, that this, uh, we accept this uh, whole book of laws. 
Do I have a second? There's a second. Is there a discussion? They go through the Robert's Rules of Order, and if it gets passed, they adopt. They adopt. They don't pass. Remember, to pass the law is really hard to do. But they adopt the whole, the whole book. Now, in California, in 1872, California was having so much trouble with their statutes, which were constitutionally valid laws, and they were they were all over the place. In other words, there was no section of penal laws and no section of probate laws. It was just as they as they got passed, they were put in the books. And so they said, well, we need to codify the statutes. And they set up a codification blue ribbon panel, and they they did a lot of work, and they came back with uh, the, the codified statutes, and it never it was never passed. So they they said, well, so much has happened since that got started. We need another blue ribbon panel. So they tried to codify the, the constitutionally valid statutes again, and it failed. And they did it three times. And by the time Governor Leland Stanton um, Stanford was our governor, and he was one of the big four of the uh, the railroad, the first transcontinental railroad. Very wealthy man. He, he, he they, they just decided, well, let's let's look at what other states are doing. Well, New York had four codes, and they were administrative laws. They weren't constitutionally valid, but they were very well organized. And they looked really good. And so California adopted the New York codes. That would be the penal code, the code of civil procedure, the civil code. By the way, when the word civil is involved, it's, it's not constitutional. It comes from Rome. It's Roman civil law. And so, and then the, the, the government code, um, excuse me, the political code, which eventually became the government code. So there was four books, four different books, and I have them. I have, I have the reprint in my 9,000 law book collection. They had four books. Now, this was in 1872. Now, that was seven years before the 1879 Constitution came into being. And that happened after the, 18, the Act of 1871, which made these, uh, these uh, corporate governments, quasi-governments. So, see, dates are important. This is why history is so important. You know, when I was in high school and college, I hated history. I thought, who cares? That all happened in the past. But now I find that it's really important because we need to find out the intent of that original lawmaker. So now we have in... There, there is no provision in the 1849 California Constitution for the adoption of any administrative laws, but yet they did it. And in the, in the beginning, it says if there's any conflict between these codes and the... Uh, the real laws, the, the statutes, the, the, the statutes will prevail. So they, they kind of said that that would happen. But the man on the street, the average man, he didn't know that that wasn't really a law. It looked like a law. It sounded like a law. It was in the book. And the, the judges and the, the attorneys were prosecuting. And the, because of the people's ignorance, they fell for that. Now then, seven years later, they passed in California the 1879 Constitution. And that was that's a federal corporate constitution. That's for the freed slaves. The so, the uh, sovereign people didn't put that in place. The, the uh, citizens of the United States did, which would be the freed slaves. This was right after they got freed. So the 1849 California Constitution is to, to, was to protect the sovereign California people. 
from their government. And, and they could hold those government people's feet to the fire with their oath of office. Say, wait a minute, you violated this part of the Constitution. The 1879 Constitution was for the three states. It was designed to control. And it dealt with, it had a whole different vocabulary. It dealt with persons, not people. Now, the term people and persons are both synonymous. They're both plural. And yet they refer to different groups of people. And that just goes right over the head of most people. And they just didn't get a, pick up on that. They, well, I'm a good person, and that guy's a bad person. So the term person you know, applied to them. And if you, if you think it applies to you, it does, because of your own ignorance. You know, I'm not a preacher or an evangelist, but, <clears throat> but I was... I was raised in a, in a church, and I went to parochial schools all my life. My children went to parochial schools all their life. My parents did, too. In other words, we, we paid taxes, we paid for the public schools, and we paid for our own tuition at these other schools. I'm not one that goes out and, 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 and preaches. Uh, but there, there is a, a, something that needs to be brought up. Whether you're an atheist or an agnostic, there, there's a, a prophecy that most I've never seen anybody talk about it, but it affects everybody, even if you're a, a Muslim or a, a whatever religion or no religion at all. It affects you. And that's in Daniel 7.25. It says, my people, excuse me, it says, uh, and he shall think to change times and laws. Now, <clears throat> there's two things there. There's a, there's a conjunction word in there, the word and. And he shall think to change, doesn't, he doesn't know he did it, he just thinks he did it. And the word he is lowercase, so it's not referring to the creator. So somebody else thinks that he changed times and laws. Now, because I, the church I was raised in is a Sabbath-keeping church, uh, they, I've heard a lot of sermons about how the Sabbath was changed from the seventh day to the first day of the week. And uh, But nobody ever talks about the and laws part which I will right now. And um, <clears throat> that happened in 1844 when, when, the, uh, when the law of the land was violated. See, until 1844, the law of the land and the law of the sea started and stopped at the mean or average high tide mark of the oceans of the world. All countries had a, a common law or a law of the land on the dirt on the dirt, soil, earth, ground. There was no real property or property or premises. Everything was at the common law. Those other terms are under civil law, Roman civil law, under the law of the sea. So in 1844, Congress did a good thing. This was a good thing. They said a ship's captain should maintain law of the sea control of his ship to the end of the voyage. And that means even up past the mean or average high tide mark on the Mississippi, Columbia, Colorado and Hudson Rivers. And so they let the law of the sea come inland so that the ship's captain could maintain total control over his ship, its cargo, his passengers, and his crew. So the law of the sea got us started inland for a good reason. Then they found out, hey, you know, this is a good thing. We get to control people under the law of the sea. Let's through a contract put everybody under our control. So and that was before the Act of 1871, by the way. And but this is, uh, in other words, the, the genuine de jure government uh, allowed the law of the sea to come inland. 
and they decided we can do this through a contract. And there's all kinds of contracts. There's express contracts, implied contracts, adhesion contracts, documents in the nature of a contract, but they're all contracts. Well, that invokes American contract law, which we talked about earlier in this document. You have to have a meeting of a mind. Everybody's got to say this is good for me, and uh, it's got to be put in writing, especially if it's in, in uh, over land. Uh, and there has to be a minimum of at least one American dollar of silver as what's called lawful consideration for that contract. Without lawful consideration, there is no contract. Now, we haven't had any contracts, any lawful contracts since 1965 when they came up with the uh, Crane's Act of 1965 and they took away the redeemability of the silver certificate and they brought in clad coins, that's copper-coated, uh, excuse me, silver-coated copper coins. And in other words, they cheated us. I have a 19, excuse me, an 1853 cent, which is solid copper and it's bigger than a quarter. You see how they cheated us? They, they said, well, we've got to get that, we can't, we've got to get that copper down. So for many years, we had the Indian head penny and the Lincoln head penny, which were, or cent which is about one-third the amount of copper that was in that 1853 cent that I have. So the government keeps, or the quasi government or the federal corporate government keeps shading us for their own benefit. We need to know how to buck that system and do it successfully and do it righteously and for good cause, which is what I do. That's my specialty after 36 years. 36 years ago, uh, I got stepped on pretty hard. I had a half interest in a beautiful hotel that is now gone because they destroyed it. They flattened it. It's gone uh, because I was going to compete with a new Ramada Air, which became the Maruka and the Radisson, and then it's been vacant for nine years because the economy is so bad. And anyway, so we have all these things going for us, but we need to invoke them. And we have to say, I'm one of the sovereign people. Don't call me a sovereign citizen. My land is sovereign. Now, here's how that goes. You know, this, this is for mortgage companies. And this is what John Doyle and I uh, use to fight mortgage foreclosures because there was no lawful consideration there. There was no meeting of the minds. And here's what happened. There came a day when you bought your house that the seller issued a grant deed. A grant deed is different than a quick claim deed because a quick claim deed says, I'm, I'm deeding you everything that I have or don't have. I may not have any interest. Like I could give you a quick claim deed to the Empire State Building. It would mean nothing to you. If I gave you a grant deed to the Empire State Building, it would say, I have the ownership interest in that building and I'm granting it to you. So there's a statement made with a grant deed. Now, when somebody signed that grant deed to you and your wife or your, your or, you know, your family, they, at that moment, and nobody teaches this, by the way. I've never heard anybody teach this. They, they, you became an assign of the original United States land patent or state land patent where the sovereign allodial title came from the original Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and the Protocol of Perry Terrell. And it could be from a, a, a Spanish or Mexican or Russian uh, or French land grant. It could be a recognition of that. So 
this land patent is the highest form of ownership there is, and that seller had that position, and he granted it to you before you signed any papers. So now you have the sovereign lodial title, but nobody told you that you had that title. So you you go in and you get your your um, you try to get your loan. You sign an application for your loan, and they they bump that face value. Let's say it was for uh, half a million dollars, five hundred thousand dollars. They bump it up by from seven to ten. So it could be a five million dollar amount of money now that they've created. It's called new money. It's not vapor money. They like they like, there's case law against vapor money, but that was that was a feeble attempt to, to put this argument down. We use the term new money because that's what the Federal Reserve refers to it in their book Modern Money Mechanics, which is online, and another book uh, called uh, Bet You Thought, which is also online. They talk about how money is created. Henry Ford made the statement, if Americans knew how money was created, there would be riots before morning. Yet he used those same laws to sell 1,500 Model Ts a day. That's what he could crank out. And so he knew all about creating new money from a from a signature on an application. Well, then they check your credit because they want to get paid back for the money that you gave them. <laughs> And they want to get paid back, so they say, "Well, your credit looks good. Come in, and we'll sign a promissory note." So you sign a promissory note. Now you really owe them the money, but there's no security for that promissory note. So they say, "Well, now we've got this other document. It's a security instrument. You need to sign this deed of trust." Now they, you got the sovereign lodial title with a grant deed. Now we have a deed of trust or a trust deed. Now you just gave that that fake lender, the pretender lender, you gave them the sovereign lodial title from that land theft. They became an assigned. But that's okay. There's a way around that. Because of their greed, they separate the promissory note from that deed of trust and they invest it on the stock market. <coughs> it's invested all over the world. It can go up by 1,700%. Why would they want to... So wait for you to pay on that little five percent loan when they can get seventeen hundred percent by investing it. But in the meantime, they separated it from that deed of trust, and when they did that, they killed that security instrument. They can no longer foreclose on your house with that deed of trust. But if you do it every day because of the ignorance of the people, and and the, I think a lot of judges know that this is what I'm saying is true, but they just go ahead with it because they're they're uh, their um, retirement is invested in these um, mortgage-backed securities, which are invalid. So now, here's this deed of trust that's worthless. It's been abandoned, and when it gets abandoned, you you that you gave it to them, it it comes comes back to you. So now you have the sovereign lodial title from that land path. Now you are truly a king on your own sovereign land, even though you're making payments. Even though you're making payments, so there's ways to stop making payments, and, and there, are, there are judges are now ruling in in our favor because their families are getting foreclosed on, and they're saying, "Well, we're, here's here's the real world," and so we're gonna. So there's a lot of good case law coming down now, and available to us from all over America, all the way up to the Supreme Court. 
But there's one case that goes clear back 128 years from the United States Supreme Court that says when they separated the promissory note from the deed of trust, they killed the deed of trust. So that's that's very old. And so when people say, well, that's old law, we say, yeah, but, uh, you know, the United States Supreme Court was never overturned, so what, what do you have to say about that? And there's nothing they can say about it. So anyway, uh, you and I are sovereign people. There's probably about 3 million of us now. There's 325 million Americans, so I would say there's, there's three. The, the rest of them are uh, either prisoners who are not sovereign anymore or they're in the military, which they're, they're 24-7 persons, citizen persons. They're 24-7 citizen persons. But there's about 300 million of us that are sovereigns, and some of us can step down for the period of time during the day and become a citizen person. But at the end of the day, when we cease that activity, we go back to being sovereign again, and we're kings, and we're above the law. Now, I didn't realize nobody wants anybody to stand above the law, but I would like to ask the judge, are you ever under, in California anyway, are you ever, ever, ever under the harbor and, and the navigation code? Tell me when you're under that. Well, there's never. So if you're not under that law, where are you? You're above it. So you go and put your ship in the harbor and, and place yourself under the harbor and the navigation code. Then you better comply with that code. But when you're not in the water with your ship, you're not under that code. There's a there's a welfare in an institution code. Those people are under under that law twenty four seven because they have a contract. Remember the 1844 contract. They love contracts. Let's get these people under a contract. Now, here's a, here's a, a bad thing, and I'm going to tell you how you get around it. There's what they call an adhesion contract. You don't even have to know about it. Well, your folks got, got a marriage license to, uh, to be married and have children, and they have they got a license. So then now that was a three-party contract. Um, so if we don't like the way you raise your kids, we can take our kids away and put them in a foster home. And uh, those kids are under an adhesion contract. So the way around that is to you have to make a, a document that says you're you're invoking the American law of contract that you didn't were not a party to that contract. And there was not full disclosure in the record that your parents were giving up their kids with any kind of adhesion contract, and there was no uh, lawful consideration of one American dollar of silver. And so that, that adhesion contract is now null and void. It's not voidable. It is void. And there's new case law on the difference of those two words. You have to use the void word. You know, that that uh, that contract was never valid. So it's void ab initio. Ab initio is Latin or Greek for from the beginning. And so it was never valid. It was always void, and you're claiming it's void, so go away, leave me alone. All right, Chad, I think I'm ready for um, Q&A. Well, that was a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> You went for one hour and two minutes. <laughs> um, a lot of good information there. So if anybody has any questions, Genevieve, hit star eight on your phone. Raise your hand and we'll call on you. 
Hit star eight on your phone. Chirp, chirp, and we'll call on you. Bob, do you have a question? No. Well, your hand is raised. Well, I hit star eight so that <laughs> I could do the do the talk. <laughs> I did that an hour ago. <laughs> okay, well... Genevieve says she's calling now. So let's see. Anyway, um, other than Genevieve, doesn't look like we have any questions. Well, that means I was thorough, doesn't it? <laughs> I suppose you could take it that way. Okay. Oh. I'm a posi- I'm a positive guy. I take everything in a positive light. <laughs> oh, we got somebody from California. When your phone unmutes, it's your turn. All right, California, hey. go ahead. Hi, this is Ted um, from San Jose, California, and uh, just wanted to take a minute to thank Bob for all of his um, insight and and sharing. Uh, his experience, and um, I just really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I, I'm just, I, I, there's really, it's just, uh, it's good to come on these calls uh, also from the standpoint that, you know, I've come and listened to the calls uh, from time to time, and Sometimes I go back and listen to it again uh, where where you can hear the broadcast because I think that, you know, we've been trained a certain way or, or trained or programmed, whatever you want to call it. And so sometimes you have to hear this uh, several times before it really starts to sink in um, because you're really – all the way down to a person's belief systems and, and how, how things are. And what Bob does very expertly is pulling back the curtain to let you see the truth. And, um, you know, the judges do resist uh, this, although there's been some success. And so when you go into court and you are presenting your position you have to, you can't just uh take bob's words and and say them you have to understand it and you have to believe it and so that's why bob says you know also research it so that you have that behind you as well because i don't think until you get to that point and i have experience going into court and i'm not afraid of the judges or the court or the deputies, they all try to intimidate you. That's the whole game, is to get you in there, intimidate you, give up, and to give up your rights um, unknowingly. And so I just, again, that's a longer <laughs> uh, thank you to you, Bob, uh, because you sure have opened my eyes, and I'm getting up to speed and educated on these subject matters, and thank you. Uh, thank you for your comment. Thank you. All right. Genevieve. You're next. My turn? 
Oh, I guess she doesn't want to talk. We'll wait, move on wait, to someone wait. else. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you. <laughs> Hi, Bob. Hi. Genevieve here. Yes. I'm, I, I have to second that fellow's uh, statement. You are a wealth of information, and I t- actually listen, re-listen to your broadcast and type type out a whole bunch of notes, trying to trying to get it through my sick uh, skull because I've been so indoctrinated with everybody else's teachings that uh, I, you know, I'm I've been a slave just like everybody else. And you are, uh, you're freeing the slaves, and I really appreciate you. Thank you. And I have a bunch of questions for you. <laughs> okay, before you, before you get into that, you, you, may, you brought up a name last week, and I, after the call I thought of something that I should have added at that time, and that oh. was that you brought up the name of somebody who was talking about lamp patterns and doing the lamp patterns, uh, uh sandwich, and we talked how, how that's not, too smart and very expensive, and it's not necessary at all. Yeah. Uh, I've listened to so uh, on several different calls, and and I I hear a lot of wrong information, but I will not embarrass somebody and say, oh, that's all wrong. This is what's right. I just listen, and then I uh, make a mental note of what the erroneous things they're teaching. And and what one guy was teaching, if you have, if your land. Uh, is in a corporation right now. You need to put it in the name of a man because they didn't issue any land patents to women or to corporations. Well, my home of 42 years is in a railroad grant, which is a corporation. And there's, there's a I, I, I live somewhat near uh, Desert Hot Springs, California. It's on the, what they call the Low Desert. It's near Palm Springs. And uh, there's a man out there that is publishing a book, uh, and I still have to get the book. I really want it, but it's about a woman who got a land patent, the first land patent in Desert Hot Springs. Years later, a man came along, and he's known as the father of Desert Hot Springs, but he w- he recognizes that Maud was there before he was there, and she got a land patent in her name. So they issued land patents to women and to corporations. So that's what I wanted to add to that last conversation. Now, oh. you go ahead with, with your next, uh, with your question. Thank you. Uh, I, okay, so here's what's on my mind. I listened to a fella on um, YouTube yesterday, and he was involved with the removal of uh, McVeigh, uh, the Oklahoma bomber, um, his case being moved from Oklahoma City to Denver. And and he and his crew were challenging the court's jurisdiction because of that. And the court came back and said that this is a fr- this is frivolous, ludicrous, ridiculous. And this fellow and his crew said, wow, how can they say that? Because this court case should be held where the crime was committed. So they started looking into it, 
And the only thing that they could come up with was that the Constitution, well, who knows what else they came up with. But one of the things they came up with was that the Constitution was not in effect. And the reason that the Constitution was not in effect, and I and I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to say this correctly because it's mind-boggling to me. But it's not in effect because, let's see, let me look at my notes. Are you following me? Yes. Okay. Um, so when the colonies rebelled, they became outlaws because they were beyond the protection of the king or the state. And so they then, the outlaws, the rebels, became a different body politic. They became a democracy. But a republic is set up by law. So we started with a democracy, and we have to start, we have to use the democracy, the democratic process, in order to do correct procedure to create the law to establish a Republican form of government. And states can only create a compact, which was the original form under the Articles of Confederation, which was the original federal government, federal meaning by agreement. And agreements were held in check by honest weights and measures, by silver and gold. So without the silver, there, he says, there is no common law. And the silver bullet to the situation is honest weights and measures, or back to the use of silver. And the foundational choice of law is what goes with the currency. And when we stopped using honest weights and measures and went to the debt system, there was a change of law. So he, he and his group have come up with the idea that the Constitution is not in effect. And that's got my mind in a dizzy state. Do you have any information about that or any thoughts about that? Yes. That, you know, if you believe that, then you you believe in error. Um, I, I, don't, of, I don't believe anything at this moment because I, cause I'm confused. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's a lot of misinformation out there. And, uh, you know, people will still say, well, the Pope owns all the land in America. That You know, way back days. They made a deal with the Pope, but you see what they're not what they're not getting is that the Declaration of Independence was basically a declaration of war. Yeah, they were all bucking the system and so badly that, that that they they told the the king to go pound sand, and, and and so he accepted that as a declaration of war. And we had the Revolutionary War. Now, my family fought in the Revolutionary War. Uh, General George Rogers Clark was a relative of mine, 
And, uh, of course, his little brother, uh, Captain William Clark, is my direct descendant. Uh, he was the co-leader of the Lewis and Clark expedition. And uh, today's military look at that as our first special forces. But the Declaration of Independence of 1776, which was before the 1779 Constitution, um, stopped everything. Everything came to a screeching halt. Nothing in, in, before that is in full force and effect. And and so we built from there. And yeah, they did do the Articles of Confederation, and they and that was never done away with. And uh, now this is the first time, and I'm willing to learn. First time I've heard, but again, I don't think it's true that the, the Articles of Confederation created a democracy. From what I understand, everything has been a republic from day one. All the new states had to come on and be republic in their form. If you look at the California uh, admission of California into the Union, it says, and it appears that it is republic in its form. The, the term democracy, if you look at the uh, 1928 uh, Army Manual, they define the difference between a democracy and a republic, and they're completely different. There is no such thing as the democratic republic. I think so, I think his argument was that was that in a republic everybody has to vote and that not everybody voted on the republic and therefore it's still a democracy. Well, I don't know if it's still. I don't know if it ever was a democracy. I, I need proof before I before I would, would would agree to that that it was a democracy. Now the government itself, the people that stepped down from their sovereign status, it, it's a democracy. In other words, it's all by contract uh, under administrative law, under the law of the sea. And it's always been that way from day one. That might be where they're getting that. But uh, as far as the people are concerned, you, you and I are not part of the, of the Constitution either. But we can hold their feet to the fire. The public servants are the one that swore an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution, so they became a party to the Constitution years later with their oath of office or their oath of allegiance. And now we can we can say, look, you violated your oath. You know, you're supposed to you're supposed to go by the intent of the original lawmaker. Why are you out here with a with a with an inspection warrant signed by an administrative law tribunal for cause? I'm I'm protected by probable cause of a common law felony of 1879, which was never amended. You need to go away and leave me alone, or we're going to all get to know each other much better in the days, weeks, months, and years ahead, because I'm going to sue you. So basically, whether it's a democracy or a republican form of government, we still have common law, and we can rely on that, and we we quote their own rules and regulations and laws back to them. See, that's what I just read this morning earlier. We have an action at law. Right. If you look at any modern real estate contract, there's a paragraph that says if there's a, an action at law or suit in equity, the prevailing party will have his bill paid. Well, the term action at law is a common, it's a, it's a, a term today on today's documents that refer to the common law. See, when the word law is in a word, it's the common law. For instance, things are lawful or unlawful. You have a mother-in-law, a father-in-law. You have uh, 
all kinds of, of, of stuff with the law. Those are the common law. When you get into legislative stuff, it goes to become legal or illegal. Right. So okay. some an act an act can be actually lawful but illegal. Yes, I but, I understand that. So we we claim to be under the common law. We 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 don't want any of your privileges that put us make us into a a citizen person. See, I, I at one time I've had so many licenses. I have a Class A chauffeur's license. I could drive any vehicle or combination of vehicles across America. I had a loan officer license. I had a real estate license. I had four state contractors licenses. I had a manufacturer's license. I built 35 vehicles in my in my own factory. I had all these licenses. Now I have no licenses. I don't even have a driver license. I don't preach that to others. But I don't have a driver license because I don't drive, and I know the difference between the driver and the traveler, and I can prove it in court, and I win in court. But see, when you have privileges, that those are contracts. I I got rid of all my privileges. I am not privileged anymore. I have all my unalienable rights endowed to me by my Creator. If you don't have a Creator, that's too bad. I have a Creator, and I. And I and he gave me all these unalienable or unalienable rights. You cannot touch my rights. What I do is a matter of right. I don't have your privilege. In other words, the highway is my right of way. I agree with you. I yay for you, Bob. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. okay. That that does that helps me. What you said helps me because listening to that fella yesterday. Really got me confused. So, oh, good. <laughs> That's a relief. So, now so you got we, another question for us? Uh, is that all right? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yes, I do have another question. Thank okay. you for asking, Tad. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for answering, Genevieve. <laughs> it, uh, well, now, Bob is. I've heard that Social Security. You know, joining up with the Social Security is a contract. But how can there be a contract if there was no consideration given? Well, you know, I I, I believe there was. You know, my when I signed up for that, it was so long ago. I was 14 years of age, and now that was 70, 60 years ago. And and when I when I signed up for it, it was SSI stood for Social Security Insurance. It was for my insur my retirement insurance, and I was told I had to have it. Now I wasn't of legal age at that time, so I can void that if I want to. But today's government looks at Social Security as welfare, and my answer is no. You might want to call it welfare, but it was a contract that I signed up for for my retirement. And, um, you know, I stopped paying in probably 40 years ago because I thought, you know, by the time I need it, it won't be there. But now I believe that they'll just keep voting and voting and voting in more, and it'll always be covered. They'll try to make changes. But if they stopped it completely, there would be really big riots right away. And so I went and checked. When I got to be 62, I thought, well, I wonder if I got my 40 quarters in. I don't know. They keep records. So I went out and I got, <laughs> I, had my, I had my 40 quarters in. So I started getting my 
my my uh, retirement that I had paid for myself all those years ago, and so I have no problem with, with taking what 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 I what I bought under contract. They're they're bound by that. Now I can I can use up more than I ever put in, but that was the deal. That was that was the uh, the contract. You could outlive. They're never going to say, well, you know, you got all the money you put in back. Uh, so you, it's going to end. That, that's not the way that works. So as of right now, I've got back more than I ever put in. But yeah. it's handy. It's handy, and I take it freely, and I, I, I uh, admit to it because it was a contract that I entered into with an understanding that it was for someday for my retirement. Yeah, I like Social Security myself because I'm on it. But I keep hearing that that it's a contract, and that and that I am somehow um, because of that single contract that I am somehow involved in some kind of octopus bunch of contracts with the government. Well, yeah, see, what they would like you to believe is that that makes you into a citizen uh, person, and it doesn't. Because, because, because they never gave you full disclosure that if you take this uh, Social Security contract, you're going to lose your sovereignty. They didn't give you that uh, full disclosure. So then it, 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 it's, it, it is a contract, but the contract is binding on them more so than binding on me. But did you give them a, some consideration when you signed that? I don't remember. I do remember I had to pay one dollar to sign up for the for the selective service. Lucky that, you. <laughs> yeah, I I did. I paid a dollar. Wow. To sign up, and that made that contract valid and binding. Wow. Okay. Uh, well, then one more question, if that's all right. Sure. Um. Do, do you have any? Uh, leads on finding out about uh, common law copyright. No, well, you, here, here's yeah, I can tell you where you go and look that up. Oh, good. You, you go to you go to a to a law library and you go. They have a series of books called Words and Phrases, and. Um, you look up common law copyright, and there might be. Six or eight pages. It might be three pages. I don't know. I haven't looked that up. Oh. But it'll tell you everything you need to know. Now, then, in California, I don't know about your state, uh, we have Matthew Bender's books. Matthew Bender has uh, a set of books called Practice and Pleadings and another one called, uh, I think it's Memorandum of Law. Two different sets. They, they back each other up. So you want to look up common law copyright uh, or you might just look up copyright and then they'll show all the different kinds of copyright one of them will be common law copyright and see what Matthew Bender has to say about it and there, he'll have forms in there where you can make a claim I guess uh, whatever you need uh, I, I like Matthew Bender's books I, I use them a lot and uh, one of these days I'm going to be buying a set of uh, a books uh, called Words and Phrases, which is much more complete than a law dictionary. I have most law dictionaries in my own set of set of law books, including Bouvier's and Ballantines and Blacks. 
but words and phrases is a really good set of books. I also have Corpus Juris Secundum, yeah. and that might you might look up in Corpus Juris Secundum uh, common law copyright, and that could be even your better your best uh, source. Thank you, thank you very much. I appreciate okay. that. Okay, I think that's it for me tonight. Thank you again, right. Bob. I, I, I appreciate your your. Um, your comments and I appreciate your questions. You're you're you're, uh, you're a deep thinker and you have good questions. Bless you for saying that. I I feel like I'm so in the middle of ooh, the whirlpool, you know, and and I don't know what to ask sometimes, but I know I've got a million questions. Lucky you, <laughs> Dad. Thanks, Dad. I appreciate your help. All right, you I'll let you go. Leave. Good night. Good night. All right. So I think that's going to do it. No more questions. So you guys, thank you very much for joining us. And Bob, you too. Thank you. Good night. All right, everybody. Good night. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.